0: It's Exodus 21 to17, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." You shall have no anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's.
1: Thank you so much. We thank God for his words. Amen? And uh, thank you, Amanda, for reading that to us. Obviously, we are into Exodus 20 this morning. But I want to, first of all, as we introduce this title of the message this morning, which is an incomparable life. I want to talk about an incomparable life. And I will explain it to you as we proceed. But it is incredibly important that we understand that, first of all, There's a setting of the law that has taken place. So in other words, God had given to the people of Israel this law in a a specific context. There was a specific moment that had taken place. And last week and the week before, we were in Exodus 19. And what we found there is that in verses 4 to 6, the Lord said to the Israelites the following. He says, you yourselves have seen, this is God speaking to them. Saying, seeing what I did, say with me I. This is the Lord saying to them, what I did to the Egyptians and how I, say with me I again. How I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself, to myself. It says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all people, remember last week we spoke about all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is first of all establishing here that he says, I took you out for me. I brought you out of Egypt for me, so that you will be unto me a treasured possession. That you will be unto me a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. We found that, remember? you with us? You still with us this morning? And it's and so now, as they are free from slavery, it was God's intention to ensure that they know these two things. And I want to just give it to you as we talk about the setting of the law. They no longer belong to a foreign and earthly king. They used to belong to Pharaoh. Remember? Pharaoh was their king. Now God's saying, No, it's no longer like that. You belong to me. The second thing that God was in this communicating to them is says, now said of Values that I want you to live with. He says, you used to live under the authority of the earthly king called Pharaoh. And he had certain values. You had to worship him. People all around him had to listen to him. They were slaves unto him. God says, now that you are mine, there are a different set of values that I have for you. And so he introduces to them. So he's showing them a different way to live compared to live under Pharaoh. So it's very important that you notice this. We've just read the law. And and many of you may have grown up in, in churches where this was read every single Sunday. I grew up like that. But what it never really helped me to understand is that the law was given in a certain context. And this is what is so important for us to understand. So listen, first of all, what happened. And again, the setting here is. They free, they set free from slavery, the people of Israel. Okay? They redeem from Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. They're about to move into their promised land. And God says, I have set you free, I've delivered you, I've brought you to myself. They've been given a new identity. They're no longer slaves. They're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, it is said of them. They belong to To God, they become His people. And then the law is given. And then only the law is given. The law did not come before salvation, but salvation, and it's a slide up here, salvation preceded the law. Salvation from slavery came first, and then the law came. In other words, their salvation was not on condition of them keeping the law. Are you with me? you got to understand this is incredibly important. Because even this truth, this is a deep theological understanding that we've got to have about how God works. God says, I will set you free if you believe in me. And then I ask of you. And then I command you. Live this way. So God sets them free. Brings them out of Egypt. He brings them into what he has for them. He sets them free, not because of anything that they've done. The law wasn't a prerequisite for salvation from Egypt. He didn't say to them in Egypt, if you do all these things, then I will set you free and I'll bring you into the promised land. Are you with me? It's like there's going on in people's minds at the moment. This is a big thing. Because even today we live with a wrong understanding of this thing, and so they were therefore not required to first keep the law before God rescued them. He did not present the Ten Commandments to them as prerequisites or preconditions for belonging to them, to Him, not before they left and said, "Moses, please stop everything. Here are the Ten Commandments. Let them keep this first, and then I'll take them and I'll open the Red Sea." God didn't do that. The law came to confirm who they already were, and they could therefore express who they are by loving the law. So when God said to them, this is what I want you to do, they've already been given identity and say, I am God's son, I'm God's daughter, how does God want me to live now? I've been given a new identity, I've been given a new hope and a new purpose in life, now how does he want me to live? It's not, you can become mine if you do this. And I don't know how many of you have grown up and still perhaps today understand this to be about your faith in God. That you can, you need to do these things. You need to do the 10 and then you can be. Now faith in Christ, a belief system in Him gives us a sense of belonging. And then that changes our behavior. But it's not, hey, first of all, you know, you've got to change your behavior, then you can belong to people, and hopefully you can start believing in Christ. Now, here we see God did all the work, and they had to do just, they just followed. They just walked out with Moses, and God promised them. So, this is the setting of the law, all right? Exodus 20 comes after 19. Hopefully, you notice that. <laughs> Hopefully, you also notice what happens in Exodus 19 and all the preceding chapters. That God did all the work. And He didn't tell them only on condition of, if you, you know, do the following, then you can have freedom. His laws came after He had done all the work. And so, what happens now, and this is the new covenant that we need to talk about. And this is the next point. I want to talk to you about the beauty of the law. Because this morning, I want to present to you this incredible, incomparable life. That there's nothing like this. But if you're stuck at, oh, oh, it's the law. Oh my goodness, it's all these conditions to being whatever. Then you miss out on something that is absolutely incomparable. And so, we've got to talk about the law and the beauty of it. And so... Today, we, we understand that God initiated everything, didn't he? Jesus did like he did here. God did. He went out and he rescued it, the people from Egypt. And so you and I are stuck in our sin. Jesus is sent. He, God initiates everything and he sees that we're in dire need. So he steps out and he says, oh, I have to do something. They can't save themselves. You and I can't do that. So God takes the initiative and he sends his son, Jesus, so that salvation could come. And then out of salvation, we enter into a relationship with Christ if we accept that Jesus had died for us. And by the way, relationship with God is available for all, but it's not experienced by all. Shall I say that again? Freedom from sin, relationship with God. Heaven, as an eternal destination, is available for all, but not experienced by all. Why? Because all need to still make a decision. Every single person need to make a decision whether they will accept what Christ has done for them and make it personal in their lives. And you, my friend here this morning, if you've not done that, it's still available for you. But it may not be real to you yet, unless you accept it as this free gift. Salvation comes to us freely. God delivers us from sin freely. The price was paid by Jesus on the cross. And then this incredible miracle happens. And I want to take you to Jeremiah chapter 31. Because in Jeremiah, it talks about what I've just referred to. That something happens. Because if we... Consider just Exodus 20 and the laws that Amanda just read to us. Remember where they were written on? How many of you can tell me? They were written on stone. Right? They were given to Moses on stone. On tablets. And, and so these things were written on a hard core um, material. But here in Jeremiah 31, when it talks about what you and I will experience, listen to what Jeremiah is telling us. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. That's easy to remember. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A new one, meaning there was another one already in place. Okay? New means that there's something that's old. It says in verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's where we are in Exodus at the moment. And God saying to Jeremiah, I'm doing something new to my people and for my people and will. It says, my covenant that they broke. We know that that happened. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. In verse 33, he says this, for this is the covenant. That I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law, not on tablet and on stone anymore. But I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So clearly we are seeing here that God is saying, the way that I want my people to live is not to abandon the law. But they're not going to have it on stone or on tablet or on places in buildings and at home where they, oh my goodness, I've got to just not forget those things. God says, when I come and from within. And so these laws, these commandments that I give you, I will not present them to you on stone and on tablet, but I'm going to do a spiritual work in your heart that you will understand the beauty of the law, not from sight, but from within, that you want to say, God, I so love you, therefore I want to do these things. I want to, because what have you done for me, therefore my response is, I will respond in a positive way, and and allow these things to change me from within. So, it becomes engraved in a place where we desire to do what is right and not first leads. And it's like, now I want to do them. Now it's like, oh my goodness, this is a, a terrible thing to consider. It's too difficult. And where the law in the past perhaps have, have been offended, offensive to me and I couldn't keep it. Now God says, I'll write it in your heart. And this is where we are as a New Testament believers. You and I don't have to walk around it with on our phone, like, oh God, please just let me be reminded of your law. And I've got to just look at that every now and again. No, I'm not under that. God comes and he writes the law of God in my heart. That when I look at someone, I have the best intention for that someone. That when I consider God from within my heart, I say, yes, I don't want to have any other foreign gods in front of God, before God. We don't need to. No, no, Jesus would come and I'll show you how Jesus had, particularly the Ten Commandments. Jesus repeated them throughout the Gospels. And they actually said, you know what, if you love me, you will obey me and you will keep. And so what is amazing, we even see in the Old Testament where people had faith in God, God started doing this in their hearts and gave them a passion and a longing to keep these laws that we've just read out. In Psalm 119, read with me what what David writes about. God's laws, that he doesn't say, oh my goodness, these things are burdensome. They're too heavy for me. I will never be able to manage. But listen to what he says in Psalm 119 and verses 97 to 99. Just a couple of verses I want to read to you. He says, oh, how I love your (laughs) law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. For it is with ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Psalm 100 verse 102, he says, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet. Listen to what he says about the law. <laughs> the law should not be something we despise. But when it's written in our hearts, it's something that we become close to, that becomes deeper than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I want to say to you that a redeemed heart loves the law of God and becomes submissive to God and His law. It is for this reason that we can never understand, appreciate the law unless we have received and understood the grace of God. So, the grace of God comes first. The people of Israel. Removed out of Egypt. Grace of God. Then they are given the law. But remember they had not experienced the full transformation that you and I can experience today. Where God comes and he gives us a new heart. Where we. 36 says we're given a heart of flesh. And that's on that heart of flesh that God comes and he writes his laws. So that my heart is not pliable and soft unto him. That when I read and my heart is changed, I embrace the law. And I say, for sure I don't want to steal. For sure I don't want to covet. For sure I don't want to commit adultery. Because my heart has changed towards God. So then when God comes and He rewrites my heart, and He gives me new precepts to live according, I say, yes, this is fine. But if, for instance... I'm just throwing it out here right this morning. If you want to catch it, catch it. It's coming. Are you ready? Can I I can deliver. If, for instance, we say, I don't know about these laws. Let me just reconsider them again. I don't know. Surely I can have things that are important to me. And and the importance of that, Yeah, when it becomes too important, I'll reconsider. But whatever. Or... God I can look around and if I want that I can I I can have it, can't I? Or God, for instance, resting on the Sabbath or once a week just to take it slower and rest. Seriously, God, there's so much work to be done. I don't have time for that and we've got to earn money. Does it possibly not indicate something about my heart more than the law? Because if my heart has been turned Inside out. And it has become soft. And the law of God is now starting to be written on my heart. And surely I'll say yes. I see the value of these things. And I'm no longer under the king called Pharaoh. Or king called Vesi, Or king called materialism. Or king called lust. Or whatever it may be. I'm under the king called Jesus Christ. And whatever he writes on my heart. I accept that. You see it. So, this is the process that the Israelites were taken into. And so, they were given the law after salvation came. And so, when you and I experience salvation, truly, truly, we should also say, I embrace what God expects of me. I am not accepted because I'm embracing the law, I'm accepted because of what Christ has done for me. But therefore, I embrace the law because it's what He has for me. A redeemed heart loves His law and becomes submissive to His law. Outside of grace, the law becomes a burden and it leads to death. We know that. The law outside of grace, outside of God's involvement in our lives, and we only read the law like I was read it to every single day, and you know, until I Realize that Jesus came to die for my sins. I don't get salvation by keeping the law. But I was read this, and the context was never, hey, God did it first, therefore you can't keep it. It's easy, it's possible. I want to just give you the difference between the moral law, if or the, the law that was given on this day, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And then there were laws given to Moses. And Moses gave it to the people in the books of Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus. You've read many of those laws. You love reading through Leviticus, isn't it? It's like how we should do this and the unclean animals and the clean animals and how we should have, you know, sacrifices and, and all those laws pertaining to it. And, and when this happens and that happens, the things that David writes about that says, I love the law is not necessarily those laws. It's the law that God gave through Moses on those tablets. And so there's a difference between these two sets of laws. The one has not been abolished. The others have been. You've got to make sure that you don't live in, in different worlds. The first thing is that the Ten Commandments provides a moral framework, or as we can call it perhaps, a constitution. You know what a constitution is? It's how the government runs and governs the nation. And they should stick to it, by the way. The Ten Commandments provides this moral framework for God's people and expresses His character. While the ceremonial law from the books of Numbers, Leviticus and Deuteronomy deals with various purifications, ordinances, rituals, sacrifices and feasts. Those things were good because they all pointed towards Christ. They all had a message that one day this will be fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, when Christ came, he says, I fulfilled those laws. They're no longer in place. But the Ten Commandments were not abolished. They're still in place. Because Jesus even said, you should not commit adultery. You should not steal. Jesus says, you need to have God as your only God. You can't serve God and mammon. So Jesus confirmed the Ten Commandments. Because they stand forever and ever while the ceremonial law ceased as they only pointed to Christ and was fulfilled completely when He came. So we, you and I don't go around like, oh, what are we needing to do this morning? I've got to go three steps right and five steps left and, and these things I need to keep and the feasts and whatever else. Brilliant feasts, brilliant things that they did in the time. All pointing to Christ. The ceremonial laws. But the moral law, the constitution of us as God's people are still in place. Still in place. Jesus would in various places in the New Testament confirm confirm the importance of the Ten Commandments. So let me elaborate just on the Ten Commandments quickly. Because we've been reading it. So the actual law. Let's look at it. Exodus 20. I just want to say verse 2 in Exodus 20 shapes everything for us. It's the same as what Jesus, when he was about to leave, and in Matthew 28, when he said to us, go and make disciples of all nations. Before that, he makes this statement. He says, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Therefore, I can tell you to go and make disciples. Therefore, when you and I consider making disciples, it's not an optional extra for us. It's a command of Jesus. Alright? There was some excitement there. Go and make disciples is not something we go and do in Siberia and in China or elsewhere in the world. It is when you leave from here, you go and make disciples at home, in your workplace, and wherever you go every single day of your life. Because your life is a testimony of who Jesus is, by the way. So let in verse 2, it says, in Exodus 20, it says, I am the Lord, your God. See, that's a massive statement. See, if you read the rest without bringing that into context, the rest are all just suggestions. Just, why don't you think about these things for a while and just let me know what you think. and I'll just go and ponder upon them. No, it says, you've got to read it in context, ladies and gentlemen. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who I am and this is what I expect. So, Okay, there goes that whole optional extra del- um, deliberation. It's like it's not for me to go and consider whether I like it or not. It is what God instructs us to do. He's already done the hard work. He saved us. In this context, taking them out of Egypt. In our context, taking us out of sin. Now he says, this is what you ought to do. This is the framework. And the first thing he says is, no other gods before me. Just puts it right there in front of us. Makes it clear that no one or nothing should be more important than him. Boom. Full stop. And you and I can deliberate that and say, well, it's not that important. Well, God says, I've got to be number one. For us to trust in anything more than the Lord is to make that thing a God or an idol in our lives. How do we know whether something is an idol? By the way, the Webster Dictionary says this about idols or idolatry. It's the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing. That's idolatry. So you're going to say, God says, no other gods before me. Okay, how do I know if there are perhaps any other gods in my life before God? You've got to just consider what it means to, what idolatry means. And so, well, it's when there's something excessive, or excessive devotion, or a reverence for some personal thing, more than God. and It's relevant for you and me to look at. And I'm not going to give you examples. I just want to say to you, it's very possible. And it's real. Because at the moment, worldwide, there's worship taking place. And what we as believers exist for is to help people direct their worship towards God. Because worship is currently taking place everywhere in the world. You see in Qatar at the moment where there's worship taking place. In stadiums of 60 to 80,000 people gathering almost daily at the moment. This afternoon, major pressure on Germany to stay in the, in the race. Because if they lose against Spain, they're out of it. Alright? I love football. And I'm enjoying it. But we've got to understand that even in that, there's a possibility of worship to enter our lives. Where that becomes more important. Excessive devotion. That's one example. Could be your car. Could be your material things. Could be your family. Could be whatever it is. Could be education. That becomes more. God says, hey, I've got to be the one most important. So yeah, we've seen God do a wonderful work. And he says, I want you to keep on serving me as the only God. That's fair, isn't it? You would agree? He's done everything. And I says because you're my people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, I want you to serve me only. Well, okay. I don't know if that, now that's fair. And that's real worship. Where we worship him only. If this does not happen, that he is the only one. Or if there are other gods that he warns us again. Number two becomes very real. Law number two that says, no images to bow down to. If we are worshiping what we are warned against in the first commandment, it is revealed in the second commandment. Because they appear in our lives when God is not the first and foremost to us. If God is not the only God, the first God with G capital, We'll have little g gods appear in our lives. And they will look like whatever. They will appear in different formats. And so this is what we are warned against because we know that the Israelites had something in their hearts. They could not fully trust the Lord even after this. And how did that become evident? They built a golden calf. So what their hearts were full of, they now started speaking and said, we need something to worship. And they worshiped this golden calf. So if I am not worshiping God as the only God in my life, there are images in my life. There are things in my life that appear like God, can never be God, but they appear like God to me. And the enemy, the devil loves to present things to us. That could look so impressive, but they're small g-gods and always will be. So my question is, are there currently things in my life that may be revealing the fact that I cannot and I'm not trusting God at the moment? And it's not things that we like, okay, yeah, okay, I admit, it's there. They, this is a question that you and I need to work out with God. And say, so God, if there's anything in my life that is, that my faith is not fully in you, therefore I can see. Gee, God, my garden is beautiful. I spent eight hours a day in my garden. I know it's a simple example, silly one perhaps, but this is mine. Somebody touched that? Oh, they're in deep trouble. It could be a little G. It could be a little G. I don't know if there. Maybe a little G in your life that you've got to consider, because God did all the work. He says, now respond to me. Have me as your only God. Don't have any any images. The second law reveals the truth of the absence of the first. The second law can reveal, can actually be something that exposes and let us, in our walk with Jesus, consider before him the possibility of a little g in my life. They're never real gods but they think things that we exalt the status of a God and things the devil wants to set up in our lives as more important than God. So watch against that. Number three, it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And we often think, oh, it's just those American movies where they swear and say, oh, Jesus. And, and you know, they abuse God's name. But by the way, it's not that, I don't think. It's not about not swearing and not using Jesus' name in vain or God's name in vain. It is so... Much more. And I want to suggest to you that it, for instance, that John Piper, I loved him of his significance. So, so we belittle God. The way that we speak about God, we empty him of his significance. Of his majesty. Of his power. And we talk about God. But the way in which we refer to Him actually belittles Him. It empties Him of His significance. We can talk, we can do that when we talk about God, yet our hearts are empty of affection and honor for Him. Jesus warned people and said, you come with your, your mouth and say, Lord, 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 but your hearts are far from me. You say one thing, you use my name, but your heart's over there. He says, actually, that's when we use the Lord's name in vain. We can use His name in vain when we refer to His Word. Oh, the Bible. But there's little obedience that follow the mention of His Word. We say things, but our heart's over there. We agree. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's that's very good. I believe that too about God. Use His name. But my heart's over there. It's two distant things. They're separated. From each other. And the thing that separates them is faith. And submission. And surrender. God. God, you're amazing. We worship Him. We sang songs about Him. His name was mentioned there. How much of that is real in my life? That, my friend, is possibly where we can use His name. In vain. We can use His name in vain when we pretend that He is leading us. But in the actual sense, we are trying to impress others or justifying our own decisions. Oh, I felt the Lord said, I must do this. And what can I say when you tell me that? But was it really God? Or was it just your own opinion? And you wanted to justify what you're doing? And you say, well, the Lord said. So if you say that to me, how can I say, no, well, it wasn't the Lord? Really using His name as in submission to Him or just in vain? I just throw it out there. God told me to. Whatever. <laughs> oh my goodness. The fourth law, and and we're hastening through these, but these are so incredibly important. Is keeping the Sabbath. And again, <laughs> many would argue and say, no, this is not relevant to us anymore. And and we're not in any way proposing that as a church. And 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 most. Christ's followers do not propose the fact that we've got to do this strictly and, and as under the law. And you've got to, from six to six, you don't even go out and you... No, the point that I believe God is bringing across is that we need to rest. You need to slow down. But you see, we live in a world where, where, where there's so many compulsions and pressures and, and fleshly desires just to keep on going and, and moving and, and doing things. And God says, I'm addressing that by telling you to keep the Sabbath. To rest. Six days you will work. But you've got to take time out. To acknowledge that you're not a machine. That you're not God. And give attention to me. Give attention to people. Just give attention to yourself. And rest. We're not God. And God in a sense. so weird. I mean he rested after he had done everything. Notice how God also expects those who we have influence over to also be allowed to rest. If you read that, not do any work, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is with you. That's what you got to do. You got to allow rest for the people around you too. It's not, oh yeah, I rest. (laughs) But the people in my company, "Ah, they're going to keep on working. No, no. You got to teach something of importance to them. So I want to say the first four are all about this vertical relationship. Honor the Lord, no other gods, no image, not using His name in vain. Sabbath rest—it's about honoring Him and respecting Him. The next six are about this—the horizontal relationships we have. So, if this is not great, then why bother with these things of honoring your father and your mother, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The setting of the law. First salvation came. And then how we live as the saved one. So number five is honor your father and your mother. Here we see God institute a value of parental relationship. And I know that life happens and things go wrong. And people pass away. And people move on. But you know what? There's this beautiful thing that God says, I want you to honor your parents. And it goes wider too. Because we see in the New Testament it says, parents, you need to. Honor your kids. You need to lead them in such a way and be such an example to them that they will see God in the way that you live. And so it's a beautiful thing that we've got to understand that is still real for us today. Then it says, do not murder. I mean, that's a respect for human life. So we're talking about, when we talk about these 10 commandments, the two R's come up. The whole thing of respect, I respect God. And the second R is responsibility. I've got to live a responsible life. But it's out of respect and honor and reverence and fear of God. A good fear and a love for Him that I say, I respect you too, my friend. I will not take your life. I will not take what is not mine. Number seven is, do not commit adultery. Oh, my boy, is this one absolutely blown away in this world that we're in. But it starts with, we're not respecting God. The first four are not in place. So the other six cannot really follow suit. So when we come to committing adultery, we're like, I mean, that's a great thing to consider for my life. And I don't have to fall under the guidance of God. These laws have been abolished. No, they have not been. It's still very real. And by the way, when we talk about adultery, Jesus goes wider in the New Testament. He says fornication, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage. And he addresses those things. And in church, it's good that we address them. Why? Because we are the saved ones. We're the believers. And there's a certain behavior that follows being a believer and belonging to the body of Christ. We now say, God, this doesn't suit such a life. We've got to submit to you. We've got to be pure. We've got to recognize how wonderful it is to within marriage consider your precepts, your laws. Young people, old people, this applies to all. It is not, there's no exemption from it. Like, well, no, you know, I have been married before and, and I got divorced and that's unfortunate. And I found another person and surely we can just move in and have sex and just enjoy life together in that way. No, it's very clear. And we propose this because God wants us to be the light of the world. Carries on. It says, do not steal. It's a respect for someone else's property. We do not take what is not ours. Number nine is, we do not bear false witness. It's a respect for speaking the truth. Speaking the truth about people. Speaking the truth about your own life. Don't become presumptuous, but be real. Say, yes, I do battle. And in that, I'm real. Because it helps in my relationship with others. Where I say, listen, what you see is perhaps not what it is real. When you ask me how I am, please do. Because I'll tell you, sure, yeah, I do battle at times too. And we are able to, in that, incorporate just the beautiful thing of working together and being connected to one another. And lastly, it says, do not covet. We take responsibility for what we have and be content with what we have and we are thankful for what we have instead of complaining of what I don't have. That's why we often encourage one another and say, what are you thankful for today? So that we can enjoy the contentment of what we have and not complain about what we don't have. By the way, when you're content with what you have, you become generous with what you have. It's a beautiful antidote to covetousness. Being generous. You want to get yourself out of covetousness and coveting and being, oh, I'm jealous for what of what they have. Why don't you start giving what you do have? And being generous. With that. Is our obedience to the Lord comes from our position in Him? We have been accepted. We are His favored ones. Therefore, I obey. How can we ever attempt at proclaiming our privileges in Christ but not live with the responsibilities as His children and with the respect towards Him and others? He has given us so much. Now there's a responsibility that we live with and a certain respect that we have. I want to close with Matthew 22. Just listen to this. Part of just Jesus emphasizing the importance of the law. That because of what he has done, but because of what we have, this is how he expects us to live. In verse 34 of the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. <laughs> uh, trying to test Jesus. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment of in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Actually, he's saying... No God before him. This is a different way of saying it. No other God before me. And when you do have me as your God, this is the way in which you ought to do it. You shall love the Lord with God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 4. Summarized just those two. So God has done everything for us, ladies and gentlemen. He says, now you love me and you love people. First four, vertical. You love God. Next six, you love vertical. You love horizontal. And you love people as you love yourself. That's it. This is the incomparable life that you and I have been called to. It's not a burden. It's such a joy because he's done it all. He's come now to write it on my heart. Because of my heart being renewed in Christ. It's here written on my heart. And I'm like, yes, I want to do these things. And I dare to say again in closing, if you don't want it, don't try to manipulate the law. Don't try to abandon it and say, well, it's not relevant. Go check your heart. Would you? Your heart, first of all, are you saved? Have you got a testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life? I'm going to close with these two questions. It says. When considering these commandments, how does your love for God look like at this moment in your life? And again, we will send out these notes as we often do every week so that you can go and spend time on it. This is a microwave moment on a Sunday. You've got to take this and go and meditate on it so that it can marinate into your spirit. Second question is, because you love God and value these commandments, I'm assuming, is there a conviction from God for change in any of the areas in your life currently that we've mentioned? Because of your love for God. Not, hey, the law's there. First of all, you're accepted. You're His. And you love Him. You've submitted to Him. You're saved. But now as you, out of that context of loving, do you notice as you look through these things, God, there's some things that are not in place. And please help me. I want to pray that God will truly help us to be faithful in every single area because this is the incomparable life. There's nothing that can compare to this. He's done it all, He's changed my heart. David says, Like honey on my lips, to my lips is your law. How could he say that? Because his heart was changed. May it be for us too. God, I pray this morning. That your law will never be a burden unto us. A set of rules that we have to try to stick to. But Father, thank you that we will understand that we've been accepted by you. We've been given new identity. We've been saved. And out of that, Lord God, you have changed our hearts. You have made it soft like flesh. And now you've come to rewrite our hearts. And you've written on our hearts your laws. So that when we wake up in the morning and we consider sin, then our, when we enter into a particular situation and, and there's an offer on the table that we know could lure us into a sinful lifestyle, Lord God, Your Spirit within us who has written the law on our hearts, as Hebrews 8 says, I thank You, Father, that we will be guided not by our flesh, but by the Spirit in those moments. That we will truly be your people, and live this credible, incomparable life. God, I trust you for it. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.